HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network on, on tour at Charleston Wine and Food Festival 2022. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation, and today we are broadcasting live from the heart of the culinary village. Our guest is Eric Asimov, chief wine critic for the New York Times. Eric, welcome back to Heritage and the Festival. It's great to have you. Thanks so much, Sam. It's great to be here. Um, I want to talk to you about a few things that you recently uh, wrote about, and I want to lead with uh, natural wine. You said for 20 years, natural wine has been dismissed as a fad or a fraud, yet more people make it, more people are drinking it, and good bottles are easier to find. So 20 years later, you know, when you kind of reference that, where are we at with natural wine and how do we define it? I mean, is it, is, do we see it differently than we first saw it? How has it evolved? Well, I, I think that the people who have been anti-natural wine probably have not evolved, but there's a growing group of people who are interested in it. And I think, you know, in the, in the context of popular culture, 20 years is a long time and steady growth during that time within the, within the limits of the natural wine milieu show that, that there's something about it that's really attractive to, to an, the wine audience, particularly to young people. So that was my next question. The wine audience. Who, when we're talking natural wine, who is the audience? Can it be kind of cornered into mostly millennials, or it's even wider than that? Well, um, I'm, I'm reluctant to try to take a stab at that, although okay. I think that a lot of millennials are drawn to it, and this is just, you know, very impressionistic evidence, but, uh, you know, when you are looking at restaurants that are serving natural wines and, and bars, wine bars that are serving natural wines... They tend to be in areas with a lot of, of younger people. And I think this is illuminating for the American wine industry, at least, that says millennials aren't buying enough wine. 
generally, they're just less of a consumer. You know, they are uh, wringing their hands, maybe rightfully, and complaining that um, they're losing out to, to spirits and beer and hard seltzer and all these things. Do you think, like, health and lifestyle's an issue? They just drink less than maybe you and I did when we were that age? Um, health and lifestyle may be an issue, and that, you know, that may lead to the erroneous assumption that, you know, if you're drinking natural wine, you're, you're, it's going to make you healthier. The, the same way that some people have cap capitalized on this impression by creating clean wine, so-called. Um, so, but, I, but I think that uh, what in the area that it really draws people in is the idea that natural wines might be better for the planet right. than I want to get into that wines. The agriculture might be better. There are fewer additives. If people are concerned about, um, you know, buying organic foods or getting CSA boxes and things like that, it, it's sort of a natural inroad to natural wine. But more than that, even they think it tastes better. So when I meant the health and fitness thing. You brought up a good point that the wines itself themselves can be perceived as organic, natural. I'm talking about people are just drinking less alcohol because they're more yes. in, into staying in shape and all of that. I mean, is that part of the millennia? It's hard to say, right? It's, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I you know I know people who do dry Januaries and things like that, and it's. Not necessary. Uh, not necessarily younger people who are going that route. Right. It's a lot of um, you know middle-aged people like me who are wondering how to keep the weight off. Right. Or... Right. Um, do you think the things that you mentioned, you know, that there's a story behind a lot of the wines. A lot of the wines are farming organically. There's a an eye towards regenerative farming more than other things. Do you think that's what attracts, what's attractive to, let's say, millennials or younger on natural wine? I mean, do they give a crap more about that, you know, than the I consumer that's, that's been around 20 years? I think that's part of the equation. I think, um, you know, people are, younger people especially, are concerned with climate change. They're concerned right. with uh, the planet. And, um, you know, it... it if you are not necessarily um, going to, if, if farming um, organically or biodynamically or with fewer water inputs as a winemaker, it's not going to. It's not going to change the bigger picture as far as climate change. That's a, nothing's going to change that until governments get their acts together and, right. and That's do what's necessary. That, but, that, but every little piece helps, and I think people feel that they don't want to contribute to the problem any more than, than they have to. But, you know, I don't, I, I think it's really hard to single out one element. I think it's it's part of the um, the idea that there's greater purity in the, the product, um, that it's more conscientious to farm the way they do, and because the, uh, the flavors are better, and I'm sure some element is the, um, the lack of pretension and the informality of, of, of the milieu. I mean, wine, natural wine has basically rejected the idea that wine belongs on a pedestal. Right. And this, is, this right. idea of the pedestal has 
intimidated people forever, you know, and it made didn't people help the cause about, yeah. about wine. Uh, natural wine contributes to taking that that element out of it. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways that, that you can look at it, um, you know, and probably not least of which is that's what my friends are drinking. Right, right. But um, do you... I, um, it fair to bring up the consistency point? There was a time where it seemed 5, 10, 8, 12, even the 20 years ago that natural wines didn't have the consistency. Um, things that they are now, they were then, but weren't understood whether it was cloudy. Vintage to vintage, to vintage which varies with any good wines, was really, you know, wide. It, are the wines better now? It's kind of a general silly question, but can you react to that? It's it's hard to say, but I think that um, you have more good producers and fewer producers who are rationalizing flawed wines. Um, you know, wine wine floors flaws are a fraught subject, right? And it's very easy to say. You know, if you are a manufacturer of mass-produced, processed wines, to ridicule the flaws of, of natural wines. But from my point of view, I think uh, boring wine is a flawed wine. A wine that's stripped of all character is flawed by definition. So what are we comparing? I, I agree. I, mean. um, I think that it's okay to say... Um, in, in, for the sake of having a living wine, a, a wine that can change and evolve, if I get an occasional flawed wine in the bunch, that's something I will live with. And I think that's what a lot of people in natural wine would say. I don't think it's okay to have a, a, you know, a horribly bready wine or a terribly mousy wine and say, it's fine. Right. You know, I, mean, I don't like let's drinking face those it. Yeah. wines. Yeah. Um, it's just not a good wine. But part of that has come with more experience on the part of winemakers, um, greater uh, financing. So, you know, one of the reasons you had flawed wines is that producers were not able to age them enough. They had to make them and sell them right. to, to finance themselves. Right. And it, I think with... With mousiness in particular, you have to give the wines a little bit more age to uh, grow out of whatever tendency they does might have. Does that help mousiness? Does, I'm sorry? Does, if wine exists in mousiness, are you telling me that if you let it sit a little longer in age, that mousiness will... That's what a lot of people have said and a lot of people have told me. I, obviously, I don't have the scientific evidence to back that up. But wouldn't that, but that be based on you had... A 2018, 2014 bottle. You tasted it when it came well, out. I mean, it's and then not four well, years later. No, no. I mean, it's not quite like that. No. You know, it's more as, as if you, you have to give it sufficient age before putting it on the market. Right. Um, right. And that's, that's what a lot of people... There's a growing consensus there. Good point on that. Um, but I, but it's still somewhat up in the air, and there's a lot of disagreement. and, and Yeah. Um, I wanted to point something out. When you were talking about natural wine in your column, 
you tasted 12 different wines and you know we don't need to get into the wines but what was very amazing and impressive to me was of the 12 wines you selected 10 of them were from different countries and you know people who think natural wine you know initially think the Loire maybe Jura you know Italy parts of it um, but there's such a diversity now in, you know, everyone that's making what, you know, is natural wine. I guess it wasn't hard to find, you know, all these wines. So, well, um, in a place like New York or other urban centers, I think you can find them pretty well. But I think it says a lot that you can find 12 really good natural wines from from 10 different countries. And it just shows how... uh, the wine culture is evolving. You know, it used to be that you would have small groups in a particular site, a place where, you know, you would get together and, and make decisions and influence each other. But that's happening, um, you know, in, from, in far-flung communities now, people who are connected by not just visiting each other at festivals or you know, traveling to to visit a, a particular producer, but through um, you know social media and internet, where where people can discuss things and and help each other, and um, and and it also shows that regardless of the efforts of of people in the mainstream of wine to dismiss natural wine, there is this continuing evolution and attraction of it, not just, you know, among a certain uh, people, a certain group of people who are confined to urban centers, but all over the world. And, you know, as as people like Alice Firing have pointed out that, you know, it, it brings dangers of, you know, bigger companies now trying to capitalize on whatever profits they perceive in it and sort of, um, you know, do the, the equivalent of green mailing with natural wine. I, I'm sad to say that there's an inevitability to that. You know, I think you're going to see yeah. some people sort of gaming the natural. Well, that's you know. why a lot of people have wanted to see um, some sort of firm definition or uh, labeling. That's a slippery slope too. Yeah, I don't believe in that because I think that you know, once once you do that, you figure people figure out uh, how to get into it and inevitably the standards get relaxed and uh, you know, just as you've seen with the definition of organic in our country and um, I think that there's a little bit of an educational process that's necessary to to find natural wines, and that's not a bad thing. It's you know, it's one it, 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 making it simple for consumers has its attractions, but also helping making people learn about what it is so they can recognize it is also effective. Do you think, so I think it's going to be hard to, you know, define everything. I think it's going to take time. I I think it may happen for natural wines. But do you think when that time comes, things are going to have to be organic, biodynamic, regenerative? That's what's going to define what a natural wine is? Or it may not, 
you know, have to go that well, deep. Well, I mean, it should definitely go that far. I mean, you can't, I don't think you can compromise on the farming. Um, and you have to also be clear about the processes in, involved in making the wine. And, you know, when, once right. you, once you get governments and big companies involved, as, as you said, a very slippery slope. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the Internet, and we were talking offline a little, and I just want you to talk about it a little more. The Internet has been an amazing thing for wine, <laughs> you know, for sommeliers, bottle shots, influencers, you know, people just, you know, mine's bigger than yours, look at this picture type thing. Right. But I want you to talk a little more about that the wine community is obviously spread out all over the world and they would get together one way or another at a fair, festival, or traveling, but the Internet has tied them together on everything, you know, not bottle shots, not but growing and technique and science and analytics, and that's made a community and made it smaller and better, right? Yeah, and, you know, when you talk about wine culture, this has always been something that's been defined by geographical proximity, and, and that, that's been true for centuries. But wait, help me understand that better. The geographical proximity of the winemakers... Uh, yes. Um, you know, when you think of, of wine culture, it, in, in some ways it's an integral part of what we call terroir. Right. You know, you have the, the, uh, the soil, the climate, the elevation, the angle toward the sun, but you also have the culture of the people making the wine. And this culture has helped define what grapes they use, what, what uh, methods... Uh, traditions that go toward the wine, how you make decisions, which are always, uh, often tradition-based. And, you know, in a way, this was the defining feature of what we often call old-world winemaking, whereas the new world, without these cultural traditions, was more often defined by entrepreneurship and cultural considerations. Right. But the, the Internet in its current state has kind of thrown this um, formulation or, or almost gotten rid of this formulation because your, your senses of community are no longer limited to geography. You've got people all over the world in constant conversation about um, methods, best practices. Um. So if you're a multi-generational winemaking family and you're like the 34-year-old son who's taking over, the world you have in front of you with the internet is way different than that guy's grandfather as far as how far you can go, what you could do, well, what you could learn. You know, it's also part of a continuum because the third and fourth generation of these family estates are you know, they're now going to enological school somewhere. Right. They're inevitably, right. you know, going halfway around the world to do a stage or an internship, um, working for a year, then they come back to the family. So you're already, um, you know, infiltrating uh, very insular cultures with other ideas. And But this is just amplifying and accelerating the, the process. Yeah. I, I think it's wonderful. And, you know, the change is just so much, you know, for the better. And you I know, think we're at the infancy of it. And that's why, you know, you for years, for example, 
you would have in southern Chile, and I'm writing about this in an upcoming column, you know, farmers who've been growing grapes there forever, often mission grapes or things that were brought by conquistadors. Right. And these grapes and the wines that they made were, were dismissed by the big companies because they're not what... You know, that's not what sells in America or, or Europe or Japan. They want Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet. And, and um, you know, it, this, this process in the last 10 years where, you know, not only have you um, uh, had people locally in Chile, you know, meeting the, these rural communities who are just making fresh pipeño wines right. from, from Mission and Senso or whatever happened to be growing in these ancient vineyards. But you've got um, people traveling from Chile to, to Europe, and right. then you've got people making friends and conferring with each other and saying, hey, why don't we send some of that, that pipeño to us? And, and suddenly... Uh, something that was just regarded as only for the locals is right. is showing up Piquette. in other parts of the world, and there's a there's an audience and a thirst for these wines because we're all now you know I was every, just people everywhere are part of this community. I was just going to say there's a thirst by the maker to make them, yes. and there's a thirst by the market to embrace them, which is right. a very good combination. You know, the danger comes when uh, globalization, globalization, which you know, it can homogenize, but it can also expose people to the great diversity of the world, you know? Right. Um, but does the process of turning a local product into a global product change that local product? That's always a tension here. That, yeah, that's a, that's a big issue. I guess we're going to start seeing examples of that at some point. All right, let me shift gears. We're winding down. Um, you've been a champion of Chianti Classico. You and I have been talking about it. You, we've talked about it here. We talked about it on the Grape Nation show. Um, you're actually doing a tasting here tomorrow, tomorrow for Chianti yeah. Classico, um, which should be interesting. It's part of the uh, schedule. Um, you have also expressed an appreciation that I picked up on, you know, the way I did with Chianti Classico. About Spanish wines. Yes. And you noted something that caught my attention, that new producers seem to be interested in these old vines in some specific regions. And it's sort of this, what's old is new in Spain now. You know, they, they embrace these. Talk to me about um, some of the regions, you know, specifically, you know, our friends at Embanati. I mean, t tell me what, what these guys are doing well, and the significance, which you yeah, brought up. You know, it's a similar um, situation to what we were just talking about in Chile, where you've got, um, here you have in Europe, you know, historic wine-producing worlds that were not recognized as the, the top echelon like France. Um, and so when they started to enter the global economy, they, they did the, the same thing. Oh, you know, Americans want Cabernet, uh, they want Merlot, um, they want modern wines aged in oak barrels, new oak barrels. And you saw a, a kind of a rejection of lo what was local and, and traditional. And so in, in different areas of, of the country, you have these 
old vineyards of Garnacha, as as Grenache is originally known because it came from Spain, right? Or or Carignan, or you know other grapes that were just kind of you know dismissed as you know we don't need those. Let's rip those vines out and plant Merlot on the flat ground. It's crazy. You, know, you have those beautiful. But it's so much work on the hill, the granite hillside. Right. We've got this fertile area. We can plant Merlot. Nobody wants that. But they want what's distinctive and wonderful. So you've got this new generation of people. You know, people like uh, uh, Commando G is sort of the emblem. Of, but Daniel, is that Daniel Landy? Yeah, yeah. Dan, Daniel and and Yeah, uh, and the Envenati guys, the three, four friends. Yes. Uh, Laura Lorenzo, um, all of these people who are prospecting the country for these great old vineyards and making wonderful wines. And these are people who were, their influence comes from, you know, maybe maybe it's Burgundy, maybe, you know, other like highly traditional terroir conscious areas that made people think, you know, we've got old vineyards, we've got traditions, we've got great terroirs, let's showcase what we have right here in a way that maybe it's never been right. showcased before. And they're all they're all dedicated to farming without chemicals, yes. you know, no treatments, low intervention in and, the and, cellar. And honestly, Sam, you know, this is a great thing that's been going on all over the world. You can point to um, you know, the effort to preserve heritage vineyards in California, 100-old Zinfandel and mixed black vineyards, the effort to, um, to preserve old mixed vineyards on Mount Etna. Um, right. You know, it's great. Yeah, it's great. You know, um, it, it's, it's a great thing. And the... the and I, can I say one more of thing? Of course. Because this ties it back to natural wine. One of the achievements of natural wine was to say, you know, you guys, you, the wine bureaucrats are saying we can only grow these modern grapes here, but what about Pinot d'Anis? You know, we've made, that's a, a tradition here. Um, I, you know, and so they stood up and said, no, we're not going to pull out our, our traditional grapes. We're going to keep making wine from it, even if we have to call it Vin de France or you right. know, some, and uh, some people do that. generic appellation. Yeah. And, and I think that helps. They're, they're bucking the system by doing what they yeah. want, and they'll label it. People are going to find it anyway, right. which I think is terrific. The cool thing about Spain is, you know, Spain's known for its uh, Rioja and Priorat. These are regions, you know... You know, all over, you know, Canary Islands, Ribera, which is, you know, really yes. cool. I mean, Spain is full of so many great wines that are, you know, rejuvenated in yeah. the last 25 years or so. Yeah, it's great. Um, we have to wrap up, but I wanted to ask you one thing. You know, we've been in a COVID world and, you know, we locked ourselves up a little, but we're here talking. Um, are you for work going to be hitting the road to some interesting places? I mean, I hope so. Okay. You know, I've, I've got a backlog of stories that require so you have traveling to, get out to at those some places. Okay. And, um, you know, when we had that brief interlude before Delta last year, I thought everybody thought we were kind of past it. And I, I went out to California and Oregon 
Um, you know, I'm hoping to get going again this year, and I've got trips to, to France and um, I, Spain and South Africa and Italy and Greece that are all, whenever I can do them, I'm ready. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, I've been reading, you know, your columns for a long, long time. And to me, when you travel, you're just there and just get a better sense the people, the culture, you know, tasting it with those guys. Well, I, so I, for you getting out there and then writing about it, to me, you know, connects even more. I think it's a, it's really important with wine. I mean, it's one thing to sit at your table and, and taste a bunch of wines and you can, right. you know, recommend bottles. But when you are able to, to get to see people on their home turf, to... Uh, walk the vineyard to to smell the vineyard Can't to that. experience the culture it it really informs me about the wine and and i hope i'm then therefore able to inform that's the point i'm making better. you don't hope it does all right we have to wrap up i want to thank our guest eric asimov from the new york times um you could read eric's writings every week um, let's just go over that quickly, Eric. You have the now with the internet, you have to help me. You have your Wednesday column, which yeah, comes so out you, at, if a you day or the, two early. If you get the actual Times newspaper, my column is in every Wednesday. Usually, that Wednesday column is posted the Thursday before, so oh, that almost part. a full week before, but not always because things happen. So if you're anxious, use the internet. And then you do wine school and you do other tasting yeah, stuff. How does that? Wine, wine school is a uh, monthly column. It's all part of my you know, weekly column rotation. But wine school is a, a, a great thing. And the idea is that we uh, learn about wine by drinking it, right. not by tasting it, not by reading about it, although that all helps, but actually drinking it with Food with your friends and family in a social right. situation and, and paying attention to it and doing this repeatedly with a great diversity of wine helps to develop uh, a sense of what you like, what you don't like, and a sense of ease with, with your own it's, taste. It's great. Um, so that, that occurs pretty much regularly. All right, we got to wrap up. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network's live coverage of Charleston Wine and Food Festival. I'm Sam Benruby from The Grape Nation. We're grateful to the festival for having HRN back in the culinary village for the sixth year running. So six years. Eric, this is three for you and me. You can listen to all of our coverage on our podcast, Heritage Radio Network On Tour. Find it on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you, and thank you, Eric, again. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>